Well, I invite you, if you have your own copy of God's Word or the Bible in front of you there in the pew, if you would, turn with me uh, to the book of Amos, which is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, just before we get to the New Testament, near the end of the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to look at the end of Amos, Amos chapter 9, and we're going to uh, continue our uh, series on the Minor Prophets. This is the Gospel We've said the gospel according to the minor prophets, these, these 12 prophets at the end of our Old Testament. And we're looking at how they are all painting uh, different portraits of the one king, the one Messiah, the one promised Savior of the world, none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so for our time this morning, uh, we're going to look at Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. And we're going to look at the portrait of King Jesus that his prophet Amos is painting for us. And so listen now to the word of God. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, bless us now with your very own Spirit, the same Spirit who raised up the booth of David for us none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bless the hearing of your word, read and preached, and may we store it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the, in the Sunday school class uh, the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking about the history of, of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America that we're a part of, and talking about American Presbyterianism uh, in general, and how the, the, the PCA was formed. And we talked about uh, the first uh, American Presbyterian meeting in 1706, all the way back then in the, in the city of Philadelphia. But that was just American Presbyterianism. So when was the first ever Presbytery meeting held? And this is a, this is a good, uh, wonderful Presbyterian joke. So if you haven't heard it before, this is wonderful. You can keep that. This is for free. Uh, we like to joke, us Presbyterians, that the first Presbytery meeting ever held was sometime around the year 48 in Jerusalem. And that's the Jerusalem Council that was recorded in Acts chapter 15. You see, that chapter in Acts, it talks about the historic event, commonly called the Jerusalem Council, and it was a gathering of the apostles and the elders of the churches all around. And so it was, in that sense, it was a Presbytery meeting. But they had gathered together to decide very significant matters pertaining to the church. And one of those, the mat, one of those matters, one of those issues, the, the issue of the day, 
was the question of how uh, the Gentiles now were, how did they relate to the church? You see, Jesus was a, a Jewish rabbi. Salvation had come through the Jewish people, but now these, uh, the Gentiles were also experiencing the same gifts of the Spirit. They had received uh, the same giftings and the blessings that the Jewish people had, and so they'd reached a point where they needed to figure out how, how this was going to work. They had to decide, is Jesus a Jewish Savior only, or is He a Savior of the whole world? That was the question. Did Gentiles need to become Jews first in order to become Christians? And so I bring this up as an introduction. Is this a little, is this too loud? A little staticky or something. All right, I tightened it up. Maybe that helped. I bring up this introduction because our passage in Amos that we had just read, this was the deciding factor. This was the, the mic drop moment. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 15, and uh, we see that James, the, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he gets up and he gives a speech and he quotes our passage here in Amos. And it was the, the deciding factor in the debate. And so, so that's enough for that introduction. And if, if you have a, your thumb or a bookmark, you can bookmark Acts chapter 15. We will flip to that later in the, in the sermon like we did last week with Acts chapter 2, but before we get there, we, we still need to talk about Amos. So God's prophet Amos, he, uh, he was not a career prophet. We're told that he was a herdsman. He was one of the, the shepherds in the land. And I think because of this lowly background of being a shepherd, that really influenced his ministry. He very much cared about the little guy. He cared about injustice. He was all about his message was all about calling out the hypocrisy and the presumptuousness of the nation of Israel. You see, the nations, uh, Israel and all the nations surrounding it, they, uh, and all their leaders, they, they talked a big game about loving God and loving others, but their actions said otherwise. And so this book of Amos begins with this terrifying image of, of the Lord Yahweh, and He's roaring like a lion. From the, mountain, from the mountaintop. And all the other mountains and all the people, they melt in fear and in terror. And then he starts uh, naming names. And uh, he goes through a list of all these, these nations, and he has this very famous, this poetic style. He, he writes for three transgressions and for four. And it's a, a way of talking about the, the culmination of, of everything that these nations have done. Uh, a way of saying that these, these transgressions are, are so complete that they have, they have reached such an extent that now punishment is f- coming upon you. And so he starts with Israel's enemies. And we can almost put ourselves in, in Israel's shoes as, as they're sitting there and hearing Amos uh, preach this message for the first time. He starts with the nation of Damascus. For, for three transgressions and for four Damascus, I will not withhold my punishment. And the people of Israel are going, Yeah! Take that, Damascus. That's what you, that's what you deserve. And Amos goes on and he says, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Like, yeah! Take that, Gaza. That's what you get. And he continues and, and he lists Edom next. And now Edom... Don't miss this. This is the nation that descended from Jacob's brother Esau. Jacob's twin brother. Just as Jacob was renamed Israel and the people of Israel descended from him, 
So was Esau renamed Edom, and the people of Edom descended from him. And just as the brothers always fought when they were alive, so too the nations that descended from them would be perennial enemies of one another. And so we can picture ourselves among the Israelites as they hear that Edom would be next, and they say, yes, he's always been a problem for us. My older brother. (laughs) That's what they get. That's what they deserve. But they don't realize that Amos is, is going to get to them pretty soon. In fact, he's, he's drawing a target if you were to look at a map of, of, of Israel and that part of the country. He's drawing a map. He's drawing a target around Israel. He gets to some of the other well-known perennial enemies of, of Israel, the Moabites and, and the Ammonites, and they're cheering the whole time. But then he gets a little closer to home, and he says, for three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not withhold punishment. It's like, well, that's a little close. That, those are, that's just there to the south. But I guess that's okay as long as, as long as it's just them. But it didn't just stop there. He had finished drawing the target around Israel. And then Amos hits the bullseye. And he says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And he saves the longest description of judgment and punishment for them. You see, the people of Israel, they, they had thought that they would be spared this punishment just because they were the ones who had been called by God's name. They, uh, they had uh, presumed upon God's grace. They had become arrogant. They had forgotten that God requires perfect obedience to His law, complete righteousness to everything that He commands, and they have failed miserably. They had neither loved God nor had they loved their neighbor, but rather they had trampled over the poor among them, Amos says. They had disregarded the afflicted. They committed heinous acts with one another. They had made a mockery out of God's worship, and they had done all these things while at the same time thinking that they were good with God, that He would be pleased with their worship as they gathered together. They thought that they were special, that they had some kind of right to uh, come before God in His presence, even though their lives were making a mockery of His name. You see, God, He hates this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of presumption. This empty and vain religious worship is meaningless to Him. That's the message in this famous uh, passage of of Amos in chapter 5. We won't look at it in depth, but this is that, that famous passage where He says, "'Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord.'" Now, hold, hold on, Levi. You said last week that the day of the Lord was, was a good thing, was a wonderful thing, was a thing that we're supposed to, to look forward to. And it will be. But not for those who have rejected and despised the Lord and all that He has commanded of them. Especially for those who profess God with their lips, but then go and deny Him with their actions. And so we see... In this passage, I'll read some of it to you. Amos 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But what does God desire? He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness 
like an ever-flowing stream. Religious worship is, is meaningless without righteousness in thought and in action. This is a, a wonderful depiction of who God is, His, His nature and His holiness. But, but here's the problem. Here's the problem for, for you and me and for all of us. If that's God's standard, then who among us can be saved? If God's standard is perfect and perpetual holiness and righteousness and obedience, then, then who among us can stand? Because if we're all honest with ourselves, we, we know that even our best efforts, that we do not measure up to His righteousness, our, our personal righteousness, and our own personal holiness, the way we love God and love others, if we're honest, does, does not flow like an ever-flowing stream. But even at the best of times, sometimes it uh, feels like a, 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 just a, a trickle out of a faucet. Put simply, God's perfect... God is perfectly righteous and holy, and He requires of us as as His creation, as His creatures, that we be holy as He is holy. But because of sin, we do not measure up to that standard. And that's Amos' message. And if that's the case, then who can be saved? That's That's the quick summary of Amos so far. And that brings us now to to our passage this morning, Amos chapter 9. All that is true, so then who can be saved? And it's as if God says in this passage, you cannot do it, but I will. God says, I will do it. This is the wonderful message of Amos. I will save. And here's precisely how God will save. Here's how God will do it. According to the prophecy of Amos, he says that God will raise up the booth of David that will be for all mankind. God says, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to save you through the booth of David. That is for all mankind. So that's the message. And let's look at that now uh, more closely. And we'll, we'll start first with that language, the booth of David. He says he'll, he'll raise up the booth of David. But what does that mean? What is the booth of David that has fallen? Well, we, we know what that last part refers to. We know who David was, who King David, a very famous, well-known, important figure in, in the Old Testament and in the, in the history of Israel. And we also saw how David, he, he shows up a couple weeks ago in, in the book of Hosea. Remember Hosea, he, he gave us the, the main theme of, of the minor prophets. He, he's the one who told us that God's people would return to the Lord, that they would be redeemed and restored through David their king. But the question is, how can this be? If, if King David, the man, he, he's long gone, well, how can this be? How can they be restored and redeemed by King David? Well, here's how. God's going to restore and raise up the booth of David. This word booth in, in our Bibles, it, it can have uh, a, a couple different uh, meanings, but related meanings uh, in, a, in the very basic sense. Uh, it's referring to some kind of temporary structure or a tent. Uh, something that was erected out of uh, necessity or, or uh, as, a, as a temporary uh, dwelling place. And so maybe you've heard of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, referring to the same thing. This was the, one of the uh, primary feasts of ancient Israel. 
uh, that they would, uh, they would observe once a year, the people of Israel, they would build these temporary booths, these, these little structures that they would live in for the duration of this week-long feast as a reminder of God's provision for them and of how God delivered them out of Egypt and how their ancestors had to live in these structures as they were, as they were leaving. They had no permanent homes. They only lived uh, in temporary uh, booths or tabernacles or tents or structures as they were uh, leaving and being brought out of Egypt. And so that's the uh, very basic meaning, but a related meaning then can refer to the lineage of someone or someone's household. And so in this sense, this is, is uh, what we're, we're, we're saying here in this passage. This is very similar to how we talk about uh, households in our, in our context. The Baker Inc. household, Jess and I, the Chapman household, we're referring to their house or to their, not necessarily to their physical address and their home, but to their family and to their lineage. And so that's what is being referred to here. The booth of David then is referring to David's household, his descendants, his royal line. And so God is going to restore the throne back to David. And all of this is going to be in accordance with his promises and with his covenant, the covenant that he made to David. And so that's, that's the first part of this prophecy, that God is going to raise up the booth of David, a.k.a. also known as the, the house of David, his, his lineage, and he's going to restore it back to the way it was. And that all sounds wonderful, for Israel. See, that, that's, that's the tension here. This is good news for Israel, but is there any, any hope for us? What, what about those in Damascus and, and those in Moab and those in Edom? What about those, uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans that are gathered in Jerusalem that day? What about us here in America? What about the, the Gentiles, the nations? Are we left to be condemned with with all the other nations, or is there any hope for us? That brings us now to the second part of this prophecy, and we begin to see the the absolute beautiful wonder and majesty and and beauty of God's redemptive plan at work. You see, it says God raises up the booth of David, but it's for all mankind. After this promise that the booth of David will be raised up, look, look back at verse 12. Look at what verse 12 says. This booth of David will, will be rebuilt and repaired and raised up, verse 12, so that, purpose statement, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Remember that, that list of Israel's enemies back in the beginning of the book. Israel had many enemies that, that kept showing up throughout their history, throughout their story. Uh, these were like uh, the comic book villains that would uh, always uh, reappear and, and show up. Israel would, would defeat these enemies and then they would reappear in the next issue or in the next movie. If Israel was, if Israel was Batman, all these nations, they'd be the Joker and, and the Riddler and, and Thanos and uh, the Green Goblin. I know the difference between those movies. <laughs> I'm just joking. But I have your attention now. So it worked. All right, so everyone's locked in. 
The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Philistines in Gaza, Edom, Damascus, these were, these were Israel's rogues gallery. These were all their enemies that always showed up throughout the story. So why is it that Edom is, is picked? Why is it that Edom is the one that's listed here? It's an interesting question. Okay, so this series is the gospel according to the minor prophets. There's 12 of them, but we don't have 12 weeks. We're not spending 12 weeks. We're not looking at one per week. So we're, we're going to have to skip over. We're not going to be able to cover all of them. So we're not going to look at Obadiah, but I'm going to give you the story of Obadiah, the next prophet in, in this list, in the series. I'm going to give you the story of it and how it connects back to uh, and connects to the larger story of the minor prophets. I'm going to do all of that in the next three minutes, okay? Okay. Are you ready? We can, you can go ahead and even flip the page with me. One page over, and you'll see Obadiah. All right. Have you ever wondered about the book of Obadiah? It's such an interesting little book. It's one chapter. It's 21 verses. It's pretty insignificant. So we don't really have to talk about it, right? No, that's wrong. We need to talk about it. Because Obadiah is all about which nation? It's all about the nation of Edom. And what Obadiah teaches us is that Edom, as a nation, is the symbolic representation of all mankind. How do we know this? Well, first, we we see, and we see the first half of Edom. It tells us the story about the violence that Edom did against his brother, uh, the brother nation of Israel. Remember, these are are two nations descended from uh, two brothers, Jacob and his descendants renamed Israel and the descendants in the nation of Israel, uh, Esau, Jacob's brother, and renamed Edom and the descendants, uh, the nation of Edom. And so just like their brothers fought against one another, so did the nations fight against one another. And Obadiah is revisiting some of the particularly heinous, uh, violent acts that Edom committed in its history against Israel. And it also talks about the pride that Edom had over Israel and over all the nations. So verse 3, Obadiah says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. That's what Edom is described as, this prideful nation. And in response, God declares that Edom, uh, uh, God declares to Edom, he says, verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God declares judgment on Edom because of the violence they've committed and because of the arrogance and pride of their heart. Sound familiar to Amos? And everything that Amos has said about all the nations. So that's the first part of Obadiah. But then halfway through, we get to verse 15. And verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon whom? Upon Edom? No, it says the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. Why does it go from the singular to the plural? Why does it go from talking about Edom to talking about all the nations? And here's the key. It's because Edom is the representative, symbolic representative of all the nations, of all mankind. And to prove this point and to reinforce this point in a very cool way, the name Edom is spelled the exact same way as the Hebrew word for mankind. 
which is Adam. That's where we get the name Adam. Adam's name was Adam because he was the representative of all mankind when God created Adam in the garden. And so you, you can hear how Edom and Adam, they have the same consonants, but the vowels are changed. That's the same, uh, the same word, the same consonants are used. And so the pride that led to Edom's fall is a symbolic representation of the pride that will lead to God's judgment against all the nations unless they repent, unless they come and they seek the Lord. And if they do repent, the book of Obadiah ends with this promise that they will inherit the kingdom of God with Israel and with all the nations who are called by God's name. And that's why... Going back to Amos, the, problem, the, the promise can say that the risen booth of David will possess the remnant of Edom. Possess in the sense of, of including, of, of gathering in, of containing, containing that part of Edom, the remnant of Edom. Then it refers to all those who have called upon the name of the Lord. And that's why in Acts chapter 15 when James is debating with the other elders and the apostles whether or not the nations, a.k.a. the the Gentiles, that's what that refers to, all the peoples from all mankind, when they're debating if they can be included in the covenant community with the Jewish people or not, he can quote from this passage from Amos. And he makes it even more explicit. Do you have Acts 15 still saved? Let's flip over there very quickly. He says, and, and now look, he says in Acts 15, beginning in verse 16, is where he quotes from our passage in Amos. And look, he, he's quoting this prophecy and this promise, but he's using different words because, uh, not, that, not that they have different meanings, but, but he's translating the Hebrew into the Greek. And so he quotes the prophecy of Amos and he says, I will, uh, referring to God, that God will rebuild the tent of David. Again, remember, tent and booth, those are the... Those are the same thing. He's referring to the same thing. He's quoting this prophecy that says, God will rebuild the tent or the booth of David, the lineage of David. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And then Acts 15, verse 17, he says, so that, again, purpose statement, so that the remnant of who? Edom? No, but he says mankind. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Did James misquote Amos as he was quoting him in his speech? He didn't. You see, because Edom is the same word for Adam, and Edom is the representative of all mankind, and it was always God's intention from the very beginning to include all the nations in this work of redemption. In other words, Jesus was a Jewish carpenter. He was born under the law. He was born into the covenant community of of the old covenant of Israel. But he is the Savior of the whole world. And this is the absolute uh, beauty and wonder of uh, of Scripture and the portrait of King Jesus that these, these prophets are painting for us. Even here in this short passage of Amos, we see a picture of, of the future king like David. The new and, and the better David who is the savior of the whole world just as God has always intended. 
Okay. That was a lot of stuff. That was, that was way more than enough for one sermon. So how are we going to land the plane? Uh, look back with me at Amos chapter 9. We'll, we'll land it this way. Let's consider just this, this final point. Why is this such good news? Why is this good news? And it's because it's, it's all on God. God's the one who does this. It's the sovereign work of God alone. What, what does God say at the beginning of this passage? He says, in that day, again, referring to that, that great theme of, of the day of the Lord, it says, in that day, I will. Who, who's going to do it? God says, God says, I will. At the end of verse 12, it says, declares the Lord who is the one who does this. I will do this, God says, because, like we saw earlier, all throughout Amos, his message, because you cannot, you are not able to save yourselves. This is the message of Amos, just like it was the message of of Joel and of Hosea before him. And all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Minor Prophets, they all make this abundantly clear. Even the worship that we bring to the Lord, left to our own devices, it's still rendered useless because of the stain of sin that exists in all that we do. We do nothing uh, to save ourselves. And it's this, uh, this, this famous quote from Jonathan Edwards where he, he puts it so succinctly, so, so wonderfully. And he says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And that's why God had to step in. God was able to save and He was willing to save. And in, in, in saving, He declared that He is the one who will do this. He's accomplished salvation through the, the perfectly obedient life and the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, His Son, on the cross. And so that all who call upon His name, all who believe in Jesus will be saved. Remember how Joel ended. We talked about that last week. His message, right? It's the same as Amos here. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But notice, it's, the, it's those whom the Lord calls who are those who will call upon Him. And so we see the Lord and His sovereignty over all things. It's the Lord who wills. It's the Lord who accomplishes salvation. And I love the way that Amos ends his prophecy in his book. It provides a picture of what this great and awesome day of the Lord is. It provides a picture of what our relationship with the Lord is now presently and will be in the day to come. We read this earlier, but I'm going to read it for us again as we close here, verses 13 through 15. And as we read it, notice how this is an undoing of the curse and the stain of sin. This is, this is a picture of the perfect rest that we can truly now partake of as we are in Christ. But one day uh, we will, uh, and to an even greater degree, as though now we see dimly as in a mirror, one day we will see Him face to face. This depiction that Amos gives us, this will be our bright and beautiful reality when He returns. And so he says in, in verse uh, 13, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the the tread of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountain shall drip sweet wine, this this beautiful picture of God's abundance. 
and the hills shall flow with it. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and and drink their wine, and and they shall make gardens and and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. And how can we know that this promise is true? It's because of the one who says it. Amos, his book ends, says the Lord, your God. He's a a personal God. He has saved you. He saved you in and through His only begotten Son. And if He who did not spare His own Son, but but gave Him up for all, Romans 8.32, if that's true, then how will He not also graciously give us all things? See, that's the God that we serve. That's the portrait of King Jesus that's painted for us here in this passage. Let's pray to Him now.